0: From what I can tell, there has come to be some confusion when it comes to the words sympathy and empathy, sympathy and empathy. Both are transliterated Greek words. What does that mean exactly? It just means the words come right from Greek into English. You just take the Greek letters out and put the English letters in. So these are translated transliterated Greek words. Now, empathy is most certainly the newer word. Its current usage only goes back to the 1800s. That's how it really new it is. There is an old Greek word empatheia But it doesn't mean what our modern word means. Neither the modern Greek nor the ancient Greek word corresponds to our modern English word, which means the ability to understand another person's experience or feelings from their perspective. To be empathetic, to empathize. In contrast, sympathy literally means to feel with a person. It is an ancient Greek word, and its meaning has not changed for millennia. I would suggest to you this morning, though, that true sympathizing, that ancient word, always involves some degree of empathizing. That is a newer word, but what that word means as we think of it, true sympathizing always involves some degree of empathizing. That is, it's an understanding of the suffering of another, understanding to whatever degree that inspires us to suffer or feel with them. Not adjacent to them, not simply next to them. Not, not in proximity to them, not only in proximity to them, but actually to suffer or feel with them. These ideas are interesting, aren't they? They're important to us as human beings. But more so than that, they are present in our main passage this morning. The very passage that God would have us direct our attention to this morning. So if you have not already done so, please turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I pray that you have been blessed as you've been working through this book in our daily reading plan. It's right available on the counter back there. If you haven't jumped on board with us, start reading through the New Testament with us over the course of the next year. We're having a wonderful time. We're encouraging one another when we get together. We're encouraging one another on our tribe platform online. I hope that you're finding ways to bless others with what you're learning. And as we apply these things, the benefit is overflowing to the body of Christ, to our faith family. So let's look together at Hebrews chapter 4. We are going to be in verses 14 through 16 this morning. This is what we read, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I would guess many of you, most of you are familiar with these verses. They are rich, aren't they? They are precious to us. Maybe some of you have even memorized these verses, held them close to your heart and found encouragement, you know, regularly in these verses. But to really understand the encouragement here that God has provided for us through this writer, the first thing we need to recognize is how this ancient writer has provided his readers with two Jesus inspired calls to action. Two, Jesus inspired calls to action. In essence, he is saying, since this is true about Jesus, you should do this. These calls to action are both introduced in this passage by the two word phrase, let us. Do you see that? Let us. We find that at the end of verse 14 and at the beginning of verse 16. So the first call to action is found in verse 14. It's based on the fact, take a look, it's based on the fact that Jesus is our incomparably great priest. And the related application here has to do with one's confession, The second call to action is found in verse 16. It's based on the fact that, verse 15, Jesus is our incomparably gracious priest. A great priest, a gracious priest. And the related application, this time, has to do with one's confidence. Do you see it? Two, Jesus-inspired calls to action. The first has to do with Jesus as our great priest, our incomparably great priest, and it speaks about it speaks to the issue of one's confession. The second has to do with Jesus as our incomparably gracious priest, and it speaks to the issue of confidence. Okay, so that's our roadmap, right? That's our roadmap to 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 go deeper, to actually put rubber on the road and actually go deeper into this passage this morning so following this guidance let's take a closer look at these two god-breathed truths and two god-breathed commands so go back with me to verse 14 we see there that the author has presented as i mentioned jesus as our great high priest that's his own words isn't it Our great high priest. Now, the title high priest is not introduced here for the first time. In fact, it's already been applied to Jesus in the book of Hebrews. First in chapter 2, verse 17. Then again in chapter 3, verse 1. But what we should ask is, what kind of high priest is Jesus? There were many high priests, right? Right? There were hundreds of high priests from the time that the priesthood was established way back in the days of Moses. So what makes different, Jesus different in terms of him being a high priest? Well, it says he is one who, according to chapter 4, verse 14, has remarkably passed through the heavens. He has passed through the heavens. Now, listen... Being a high priest in ancient Israel was a privileged position. And it was privilege. one of the reasons it was privilege is because only the high priest on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, could pass through the veil, could pass through the curtain and enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and make atonement for the people there in the presence of God, the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, But this describes what no priest has ever done. He's not simply passed through some earthly curtain, some material veil. He has passed through the heavens. He is one who is none other than, verse 14, the Son of God. Later, the writer will add to this description. Listen to chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Wow, this is huge, isn't it? Unlike that long line of high priests who served at both the tent of meeting and the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is both morally perfect and fully divine. That's the kind of priest that we have. The kind of high priest. Morally perfect and fully divine. As we read in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He couldn't add any more words, could he? To describe the exalted picture. It's that exalted. Jesus is that amazing. Jesus is that perfect. Now, this is where the call to action comes in. Verse verse, uh, verse 14. Uh, sorry, yeah. Since then we have this kind of high priest... Let us hold fast our confession. Do you see the Jesus-inspired call to action? What does it mean? It means we should not give up. It means we should not give in. It means pressing on in faith, not chapter 10, verse 39, shrinking back. As chapter 11 describes, this is the kind of faith, this is the kind of enduring faith exemplified by so many of the men and women described in the Old Testament. The faith that's lauded, the exemplary faith. Holding fast our confession means, chapter 12, verse 1, to put it in athletic terms, images, running with endurance the race that is set before us. Not sitting on the sidelines, not bowing out, not forfeiting, running with endurance, the race that is set before us. And it's, it's a confession centered on Jesus. That's why in chapter 3, verse 1, he is called the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Do you hear the call to action? Let us hold fast our confession. So, if as we talked about before, the original readers in our last lesson, we talked about how the original readers of this book were Jewish confessors of Christ. Hebrew believers, at least professors of faith, confessors of faith. And they were being tempted, they were being pressured to return to a Jesus-less Judaism. To return to Levitical priests. To return to animal sacrifices. To return to all the rituals of the Jewish temple and all the works of the law. These readers... It's these readers that the writer is speaking to here, reminding them that no one and nothing can compare to Jesus. Whatever they think they're turning to, he is our great high priest and there is no one greater. Uh, The one whose priestly work is radically better than anything that came before. Radically better than anything this world could ever offer. You see, when you have this exalted view of Jesus, when you understand who he is and what he has done, you won't want to go anywhere else because there is nothing else that compares. But sin is deceitful, isn't it? He just talked about that the chapter before. Encourage one another as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the issue the writer is responding to here in these with these words. He is calling them to look to Jesus, to see Jesus, to remember who Jesus is. And therefore, tighten that grip, hold fast to their confession of faith. Though the floodwaters of false ideas and now obsolete practices were raging against them, Pressing them to let go of their faith in Christ. The writer presses back here. Let us hold fast to our confession. But look at how the author actually expands our vision of Jesus. He goes on to expand our vision of Jesus. You would think it couldn't get any greater than this, right? Like how exalted, how big. Remember those opening verses From chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 that we talked about last time. How amazing. Jesus upholding the whole universe by the word of his power. What? I mean, like crazy. Huge vision of Jesus. But here, the writer is expanding our vision in verses 15 and 16. Not only is Jesus our incomparably great priest, he's also our incomparably gracious priest. Verse 16 contains our second call to action. Do you see it there? Yes, let us hold fast our confession, verse 14, but also let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, think about this idea of drawing near. It's found in many places throughout the book here of Hebrews. Interestingly, if you go back and find the equivalent Hebrew word in the Old Testament, it appears 280 times throughout the entire Old Testament. But guess what? 280 times, 102, (laughs) uh, more than a third of those usages occur in just one book. One book. It's the book of Leviticus. You see, this was the word drawing near, approaching, bringing. It was the word that appears in Leviticus and is applied to the worshiper who is bringing his offering, but it's also applied to the priest, the one who is making that offering before God. And also keep in mind that the Ark of the Covenant... Which was at the very center of tent and temple, later temple worship, was partly meant to represent what? God's throne. God's throne. It was there in the most holy place that God was enthroned upon the cherubim. 1 Samuel 4, 2 Kings 19. It's there where the presence of God was said to be manifested in a very special way. The God of Israel and throne dwelling among his people. Whether in the tent of meeting at Shiloh or at the, in the temple in Zion and Jerusalem. God dwelling among his people. So here with his Hebrew readers... The writer is using all this Old Testament language about worship and offerings and priests and God's presence to urge them to come to God. Why are they to come? To receive mercy and find grace. To receive mercy and find grace. What kind of grace? Grace to help. Help when? In time of need. But but here's where things get really, really amazing. Are you ready? If we ask, what need does the author have in mind here? we have to then using the context we have to move back to the previous verse to find the answer to that when he talks about in time of need does he mean in time of la- in times of lack does he mean in times of persecution maybe he means in times of sickness or in times of unemployment or in times of confusion what does he mean Maybe he's speaking in general terms here in order to say in any time of need. But he isn't. That's not what this verse is saying. Not in light of verse 15. Look at how verse 15 introduces the idea of our need. The word the author uses in verse 15 to point to our needy condition is the word weaknesses. You see, we are in need because we are weak. Do you understand that connection? Verse 15 and 16. We are weak. Weaknesses. But the context helps us get even more specific than that. The focus here is on weakness in the face of temptation. Weakness in light of the reality of temptation. Wonderfully, Jesus, verse 15, though he was tempted as we are, he was and is without sin. So the time of need mentioned at the end of verse 16 is based on the context. Are you ready for this? Based on the context, that time of need is a time When what we desperately need is mercy as those who have given into temptation. It's a time when we desperately need grace to help as those who give into temptation but haven't given up in terms of our confession. It's a struggle, you see. He's describing the struggle with sin. He's describing the battle with sin where you fall, you stumble. You give in, but you keep fighting, and you wrestle with temptation. The wrestling, the failures, mercy for our failures, grace for our struggles. This struggle certainly can, if left unchecked, it can certainly lead to a crisis of faith that leads to not holding fast our confession. That explains the word for, F-O-R, at the beginning of verse 15, But please don't miss the Jesus-inspired aspect of this call to action. Why is it that we can come with confidence before God's throne of grace? Is it because Jesus is an incomparably great high priest in every way? Holy, sanctified, spotless? Yes, but that's not what he's talking about here. It's not the emphasis here. Is it because Jesus offered the incomparable, unblemished sacrifice of himself? Yes, but again, that's not the emphasis here. It's not about his divinity. It's not about his work on the cross. The emphasis in this passage specifically in verse 15 is the sympathy of Jesus for struggling sinners. the sympathy of Jesus Christ for struggling sinners. Did you hear that? The writer of Hebrews calls his readers to action. (laughs) And God is calling us to action. To draw near with confidence because Jesus Sympathizes with struggling sinners. Have you ever heard anything so wonderful? Jesus sympathizes with struggling sinners. Do you understand why their struggles with sin might keep them? Far away from experiencing anything even remotely resembling confidence before God himself, before a holy God. Do you know that feeling as a sinner? We can't miss what the author just told us in the verse immediately preceding this passage. Look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, you have to be, if you receive that word in faith, overwhelmed by, as the old writers would say, the awfulness of God. We might say the awesomeness of God, the awe-inspiringness of God. How overwhelming he is as our maker and our judge. The one before whom we must give an account. All things are known to him. This is our great and holy God. But again, the author is expanding our vision of Jesus here. He is most certainly great. He is most certainly exalted, holy, divine. But He is also gracious. Staggeringly gracious. And He's gracious because He knows what it means to suffer the onslaught of temptation every single day. He understands that. He knows how you struggle. He knows how you fight. He knows how you condemn yourself. He knows how you give in. He knows what you are feeling. He understands that. As the writer explained in chapter 2 verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered when he was tempted. He didn't float on a cloud through temptation because He was the Son of God. Do you understand? He was fully human. He is fully human at this very hour. He didn't float through temptation saying, Oh, temptation, I cast thee aside. Temptation, I am holy. I am Jesus. I am like passing through the waters. People. People. This describes a Savior who is down in the muck and mire with us and yet unstained in the end, uncorrupted in the end. But He understands, therefore we can come with confidence as struggling, failing sinners, Confidence that we will find mercy instead of condemnation. Grace instead of wrath. Divine help instead of what we ultimately deserve. Divine judgment. Did I tell you it was amazing? It's so good. It's so stunning, isn't it? So I have to ask you, as I've asked myself, working through this, do you personally hear these calls to action? Is God through his Holy Spirit stirring you even now? Speaking of the Holy Spirit, is this call to action inspired by a clear vision of Jesus? Do you really see Jesus here? No, not just the Jesus you have in your head. Not the Jesus in your box saying, I've got Jesus. I've got it all worked out. And and I, 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 I believe that I've got Jesus figured out better than most people. He's right here. See, I've done this big jigsaw puzzle over the years. And here's Jesus. Do you really see Jesus as the scripture has revealed him? illuminated by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. It's not a concept you grasp. It's a heart reaction where you are overwhelmed by this truth. Where it lands right on your doorstep, right in your lap. Where it grabs hold of you and it shakes you and then it comforts you. This is Jesus. Is the Holy Spirit giving you eyes of faith to see him in truth according to God's word? If he is, then it's important that we take a few minutes to unpack these two calls to action. So that we might respond wisely this morning. That we might respond faithfully in light of God's word. So first... God may be convicting some of you about the reality of what we could call mission creep. Mission creep when it comes to pursuing Jesus. Right? You know your call, like that of Paul in Philippians 3, is to pursue Christ. It's to know Him, to want to know Him. Right, The power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings. To be conformed to Him. But we can experience that mission creep. (laughs) It's slowly, kind of we're getting off track when it comes to pursuing Jesus. You are holding fast your confession. uh, Like Jesus might commend you if this were a a letter in the book of Revelation to the churches. He might commend commend you that you're holding fast your confession. But if you're honest with yourself, your grip has been loosened by the cares of this life. Your grip is being loosened by the enticements of this world. Others of you in every practical sense practical sense have or are about to let go of your confession. You are now living for yourself. You are now living for the world. You are now living for something other than Jesus. While Jesus himself has been shoved into a box somewhere deep inside of you, a box labeled tradition or maybe helpful concepts or maybe a box that says things to do when life slows down, things to do when life gets easier, and you've tucked that away inside of yourself. But as God's word has reminded us this morning, there is nothing there is no one greater than Jesus. Keep in mind, every step away from Jesus is a step towards some other Savior. Don't fool yourself. That's always true. Every step away from Jesus is always some step towards another Savior. Toward the many idols out there that offer but cannot deliver Spiritual significance and satisfaction. This morning God is calling you to lay hold of once again. To be roused from the stupor that you're in. He is calling you once again to grab hold or to tighten your grip believer. To tighten your grip on Jesus and only Jesus. But second... Even when we are holding fast to Jesus as the king of our confession, how easy it is to waver in our confidence. How easy it is. Specifically, confidence or assurance that God always welcomes struggling sinners like us. Do you believe that? Are you confident in that fact? Are you assured of that fact that God always welcomes struggling sinners like us? Even when we know the specifics of grace, we can slip into human-centered estimations of how much is too much when it comes to sin. Surely God is tired of me, we might lament. Surely I've confessed too many times. Surely I've struggled too long. You see, we project our limitations. We project our patience. We project the disappointments and the frustrations of the people who have hurt us, who have criticized us. We, we project those onto God. When we're tired of our struggles because we've set our expectations and standards someplace, we must believe, we have to believe that God is tired too. He's tired of us. Sick of us doing the same things. Sick of us struggling in the same way. Sick of the fact that we can't get our act together. That is not the truth, brothers and sisters. That is not the truth, friends. This is the truth, the word of God. God has spoken to us this morning and he reassures us that we are always, always welcome in his presence. Always welcome in his presence. Why is that? Because our high priest is Jesus Christ. Now, remember, God does not begrudgingly welcome us because somehow he has to. Right? <laughs> like Jesus found some divine loophole, right? And he's like game the system. <laughs> like, ah, oh, Father God, I worked it out. So you kind of have to accept him because I shed my blood for them. And God's like, oh, stinker. Okay. You're welcome in my presence. That's not it. We know that because it's God who gave us Jesus, lovingly gave us Jesus. He sent his son into the world. Yes, we are called to draw near to a throne. A throne. The most exalted of all thrones. The one who sits on this throne is the most exalted of all kings. But how is it described in verse 16? It's a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. You see... God the Father is not begrudgingly welcoming us. He welcomes us in love. Always. Because our high priest is Jesus. Because of the work Father and Son have done to affect our salvation. And Jesus doesn't welcome us begrudgingly or even indifferently. As if he's simply abiding by the Father's redemption protocols. I was sent on a mission and I'm going to carry out this mission. And it's going to get done. And all you filthy, dirty sinners, you're going to have access to the throne of God. I don't like it, but that's the way that it is. Because that's the transactional nature of this formula. Formula of redemption. No, 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 no. As we see in verse 15, he, Jesus, sympathizes. He feels. He is full of compassion for you, struggling sinner. as the 17th century writer pastor pastor and writer Matthew Henry put it take a look though he is so great and so far above us yet he is very kind and tenderly concerned for us he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities in such a manner as none else can be for he was himself tried with all of the afflictions and troubles that are incident to our nature in its fallen state. And this not only that He might be able to satisfy for us, but to sympathize with us. Isn't that what we've been seeing? What we've been saying? So I ask you this how will that knowledge affect you when you draw near? Will it? It should. Will it affect how often you draw near to the throne of grace? It should. Will it affect how you leave the presence of God when you draw near? After you have repented, after you have confessed, after you have yielded and surrendered yourself to God, after you have trusted Him, after you receive mercy and find grace to help, will it change you? Knowing that you were in the presence of a God who understands and loves you and feels your struggle. It should, brothers and sisters. The writer will pick up these themes again in chapter 10 when he reminds us this since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is Faithful you can't miss when you read Hebrews all the synonyms of confidence: confidence, hope, boldness, assurance, certainty, promise, God's oath. I mean, it's just one after the, the next. And we see all of them here: full assurance, drawing near. He who promised is faithful. We have this great high priest. Will you come this morning? Brother, sister, friend, will you come this morning? Yes, come with rich assurance in light of God's word to you. But then leave with an abiding joy. The joy of one who has been welcomed. One who has been loved, one who has been forgiven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's give thanks to God. Would you pray with me? Let's let's go to Him now. He has